First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In the second chapter of Peter's epistle, there are several themes. The themes include renouncing in verses 1 through 3, relationships in verses 4 through 12, and respect in verses 13 through 20. We learned at the beginning of the chapter that we're to turn from wicked things like deceit and hypocrisy, envy, slander. We are to come to a place where we despise being poured into this world's mold, into this world's way of thinking. Peter proclaims that we are living stones in verse 5. We are royal priests in verse 5. We are a chosen people in verses 9 and 10. We are strangers on the earth, it says in verse 11. So our relationships with Christ and our relationships with others include the idea of how we are related to Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the chosen one in verses 4. And the light in verse 9. The judge in verse 12. Peter's attention will turn from the things that we renounce to the relationships that we embrace or enjoy. And then he's going to focus on the respect that we show to civil authorities in verses 13 through 16, employers in verses 18 through 20, and then everyone in verse 17. Part of the question that often comes up is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does that mean? Early on when I became a Christian, I, I heard someone say, here's what a Christian is. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do. And I thought, this is kind of odd to define Christianity in terms of what you can't do instead of what you can do. Peter paints a picture of relationships and perspectives that's very, very different. He talks about the fact that we are strangers, but that we are citizens and we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, Peter has spoken about Christians being separate. Yes, we are set apart. In chapter 2, we learn that we are set apart because We've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit in verses 2 and 3. We're set apart by belief in verses 4 through 10. And so now he's going to take this issue of separation based on the reality that we're new creations in Christ, based on the fact that we believe differently and that that's going to have the practical outcome that our behavior should change. 
Christianity isn't simply something that's going on on the inside. It's something that manifests itself on the outside. In other words, we're called to godly behavior, to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And we all know it. We, we all know that actions speak louder than words. And that people are far more likely to be convinced by what they see in your life than by what you say about your life. We're to abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Well, Peter is going to give the reason. He's going to give several reasons. Number one, because we're strangers and sojourners in verse 11. And that means that we don't belong here. And also to avoid unnecessary conflict in our conscience in verse 11. And then to silence the critics. But also that our godly living will serve as a powerful tool for evangelism in verse 12. And by the way, that becomes one of the key concepts. Godly living is the most powerful tool that we possess to convince the unbeliever concerning the claims of Christ. The most powerful tool that you possess isn't that you know the four spiritual laws. It isn't because you've memorized the Bible. It isn't because you go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's the way you actually really specifically live your life. Oswald Chambers wrote in a devotion not too long ago about the dangers of trusting people. He said, quote, if we love someone, but we don't love God... We demand total perfection and righteousness from that person. And when we do not get it, we become cruel and vindictive. Yet we are demanding of a human being something which he or she can't possibly give. There's only one being who can completely satisfy to the absolute depth of the hurting human heart. And that's the Lord Jesus. In other words, if your attention and love is focused on someone other than the Lord... If that becomes the preoccupation of your life instead of your preoccupation is with your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren. Now don't get me wrong. We know that husbands are to love their wives. We know that wives are to respect their husbands. And clearly, if it were a sin for you to love your grandchildren, then we're all going to hell. But he's talking about a preoccupation. Only one person ever lived a perfect life. Yet Christians are called to live a godly life. And see, that's one of the challenges that we face. Christians continue to have critics and skeptics, but few things hurt the cause of Christ more than the inconsistencies, hypocrisies, and outright gross sins of those people who name the name of Jesus. Wilbur Smith at the end of World War II commented, quote, at first, one would think that a religion which exalts and seeks to follow the only perfect and righteous man who's ever lived on the earth, who never harmed anyone, whose words delivered from superstition and fear, whose works redeemed from pain and demons and death and hunger, whose life was as great a shaft of light shot into the murky darkness of the Roman world, 
in that sensual and skeptic century who died because he loved us and who always sought to bring human beings into communion with God to bestow upon them eternal life and a home in heaven, one would have thought that such a character and the religion which is life and work on earth established would be welcomed with open arms. The first moment it was announced and would, by its very message, the good works which flowed from it and the hope which it established never know opposition or attack or denunciation except from demons in hell or Satan who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning but such has not been its history, unquote. Such has not been its history. Christianity has plenty of critics, doesn't it? Christianity has plenty of skeptics, doesn't it? But even the unbelievers look on the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus and they go, hey, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with you. Because they're watching you. They're listening to you. Yesterday, I went to a coin show and I saw a counterfeit seated dollar. Now, you may not know anything about coins, but I think coin collecting is cool, and I love coins. There was a, a, an 1840 seeded dollar, and on the back of the seeded dollar, there was a little tiny O, which stands for the New Orleans Mint. Now, that's where I'm from. I was born in New Orleans. And when I turned the coin over and I saw the O there, I knew it was a fake from China, because in 1840, New Orleans never minted a silver dollar. Not all the Chinese people know that. But do you suppose when I found this counterfeit dollar that it made me go home and go, I'm throwing away all my silver dollars because I found one fake one. No, it didn't motivate me to throw away what was real and what was true and what was good. But sometimes many people are willing to dismiss Christ and Christianity because they come across one big phony. So Peter begs, he begs, he begs because he knows that people are watching in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He knew full well that the world was watching. And since Christianity has, and since Christianity has, 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 and since the Christian, if you will, has been set apart by a new birth, since the Christian has embraced a new belief, he says, look, I need you to act differently. We are the objects of God's immeasurable love. And so Peter pleads. He calls the diaspora Beloved, the diaspora are these Jews and Gentiles who have embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they find themselves all over the Mediterranean rim. And he says, I urge you to reciprocate God's love by living for him. And he 
emphasizes once again the word sojourner. Remember, he's already used that word at the opening of the epistle in chapter 1 when he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus to the pilgrims of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is that area that you and I would call modern Syria and Turkey that just sits across from the Hellespont. And he basically uses the term sojourner once again because it implies the transitory nature of citizenship of Christians who live in this world. We are people who don't necessarily belong here. We live side by side with the people in the culture, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're called strangers and pilgrims. And by the way, the world in the Bible, when you hear people talk about the world, it's not talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. It's talking about the world that stands in opposition to God. It's the world that defies God and rebels against God and says, I don't want to believe in a Bible and I don't want to believe in a rule giver because I don't want to follow the rules. In the Bible, the human kingdoms apart from the God of the Bible are types and pictures of this world system. So when you're reading your Old Testament and you read about Egypt and you read about Assyria and you read about Babylon, Egypt speaks of the human advancements and human wisdom. Babylon, the wickedness of the world. Assyria becomes a type and a picture of the crushing military subjugation of this world system. John Phillips writes, Egypt was the home of the world's culture. Babylon, the world's cults. Assyria, the world's cruelty. There is a world with culture and cults and cruelty. But that's exactly what it becomes because it doesn't embrace the God of the Bible. The image of the pilgrim calls to mind Abraham in the Old Testament. Remember, Abraham was a man on his way home. Remember, Abraham was told to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place which God was going to show him. So Abraham was a person who was just passing through. John Bunyan made famous the characters of Christian and Hopeful in a book called Vanity Fair. And uh, the in, in, that, in the book of Pilgrim's Progress and Vanity Fair, they refused to be distracted and detoured by the possessions and pleasures that were offered by the world's merchants and, and the market mercenaries of this world system over and over again. They're told to pause, to stay, to look, to enjoy, to be distracted from what they were really called to do, which was to pass through. Lot becomes an example of a person in the Bible who finds himself looking, then camping, and then living in this world system. So that when we see Lot again, angels come from God to, to deliver him from a place that's destined to be destroyed. And so Peter calls the Christian to abstain from fleshly lust. Now, what does that mean? The word abstain means to hold oneself from something. And in this case, lust means craving or strong desires. Now, you have to understand something. There's two kinds of desires. 
lawful, legal, and unlawful, and illegal. We've already heard earlier in 1 Peter where Peter encourages the Christian to crave, that means to strongly desire the pure milk of the word. We are to strongly desire the Lord. We are to strongly desire the things of God. We are to strongly desire the things that make for godliness. The Jerusalem Council wrote a letter to the Gentiles who were coming to Christ. And the first crisis in the church was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? And in Acts chapter 15, in verse 20, and also in verse 29... James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostles got together and they wrote a letter emancipating the Gentiles from religion and legalism. But there was an encouragement of certain things to abstain from. Peter gives a series of reasons why this makes good sense. We're no longer a part of this world in this world system. We're sojourners and pilgrims. And he'll, he'll include the conflict that takes place inside of the believer's heart is another reason. And then he'll point out that people are watching. The Christian is born again. We have a new nature. And with that new nature comes a new craving and a new longing. Now, the new life is lived in the context of an old life with a fallen nature. The Bible calls this life the flesh. Now, you have to understand something. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about the physical muscle and tissue that's hanging from your bones or clinging to your bones, depending on how good of shape you're in. <laughs> your flesh is everything that you are apart from Jesus. That's what it means. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. And you may be confused because you might think, you mean, does that even mean the good things? Yeah. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. Sin is no longer your master. You're free from its power to abuse you and enslave you. And the very fact that Peter says abstain means that we as saints have the ability by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to restrain the lustful flesh and say no to flesh. People laughed at Nancy Reagan when she said, just say no to drugs. The people who laughed said, that's not possible. You just can't say no to drugs. You just can't say no to lust. You can't just say no to the evil enticements of this world. And you know what? I'm going to shock you and surprise you by saying they're right. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and apart from the power of the Holy Spirit and apart from the freedom that's been given to you in Christ, guess what? The unbeliever isn't free to say no. But you are. You who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You are free to say no. And so fleshly lust isn't limited to sensuality or immorality, but it can include anything that prompts you to seek satisfaction apart from the work of God and the person of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul gives a laundry list in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, where he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, revelries, which is party 
behavior and the like. And, and he adds sort of a divine etc. and the like. In other words, this is by no means an exhaustive laundry list. There's way more that we could add to the list. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so for the unbeliever and the make-believer, this world is a, is a playground where the flesh is free to run wild. But for the believer, the world isn't a playground, it's a battleground where souls are at stake. And your life is what's at stake. And the observation of the unbelieving world is at stake. We're to adopt a new attitude to the world around us. But we're also to adopt a new attitude to the war within us. That's what Peter is saying. And so he says reason number two. Avoid the unnecessary conflict that's taking place in your soul. Look what it says in verse 11. Which war against the soul. One translation says, wage war. And in the original language, it's a very strong word. And it carries the idea of a long-term military campaign. Remember, battles usually were of two types. One that could be easily won. But then there were those battles that were hard fought, that were going to be difficult and time consuming and resource consuming. And that's the word that Peter is using here, which wage war in the soul. And you might be thinking, well, I want the war to be over. So do I. And I wish I could tell you that it's going to end soon, but I would be lying to you. And so that's not doing you a favor. I have an obligation to tell you the truth. And, and the truth is that the war continues. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. John MacArthur writes, quote, It implies not just antagonism, but a relentless, malicious aggression. Since it takes place in the soul, it's a kind of civil war joined with the concept of fleshly lust. The image is of an army of lustful terrorists waging an internal search and destroy mission to conquer the soul of the believer. Here's part of the point. Satan hates you. God loves you. God sends Jesus to die for you. And Satan goes, hey, you know what? I can't change that, but I can make life miserable for the believer. And so, usually believers are going to live one of two lives. A life of victory or a life of victimization. We have a new nature and an old nature, it says in Romans chapter 7. You've heard me use the story over and over again. It's like two dogs fighting inside of you. And one old gentleman said, well, which dog wins? And he says, the one you feed. If you feed the desires of the flesh apart from God, it's going to gain the upper hand. We're saved. And sometimes Christians live defeated and even disgraceful lives. 
So how are we to avoid defeat and disgrace? Well, guess what? We have to appropriate the means of victory over the flesh that's set forth in the New Testament. By the way, if you want to know what that is, it's found in Romans chapter 6, where we're told to know about our new position in Christ, to reckon ourselves dead to the old life. Reckoning is that step of faith that says, what God says about me in the Bible is now true. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not me who lives, but Christ lives lives in me to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So reckoning is faith and action. It's resting on the word of God in spite of circumstances or feelings. We reckon ourselves dead to sin when we yield ourselves to Christ. If you want to avoid unnecessary conflict in your soul, then you have to heed what Peter's saying. He's saying, abstain from fleshly lust. Paul wrote, flee youthful lust in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. There are some movies that you shouldn't be watching. There are some books that you shouldn't be reading. There are some company that you shouldn't be keeping. When I thought about this long ago, um, some of you know that there's a, the prime minister of Israel is named Benjamin Netanyahu. What you may not know is that Benjamin Netanyahu had, had a brother who was a golden boy in the Israeli army. And in July 1976, he was one of the Israeli commandos who went on a daring raid at the airport in Entebbe. Some of you are familiar with it in Uganda, in which 103 Jewish hostages were freed. In less than 15 minutes, the soldiers killed all seven kidnappers and set the captives free. As successful as the rescue was, however, three of the hostages were killed in the raid. You may not know why. As the commandos entered the terminal, they shouted in Hebrew, get down, crawl. Now, you've got to understand something. Muslim terrorists don't necessarily know Hebrew and they don't necessarily know how to say get down and crawl. The Jewish hostages understood. They lay down on the floor while the guerrillas who didn't speak Hebrew were left standing. So they shout in Hebrew, get down and crawl. The rest are left standing and they shoot them down. But one young man was lying down and he actually stood up when the commandos entered the airport. He stood up and he was shot for bullets that were meant for the enemy. And had these three simply listened to the soldier's command, they would have been freed with the rest of the captives. But they didn't go free and they were shot dead. And when you open up your Bible and when you read these words, you are going to fall into one of two categories. You're going to heed the admonition or you're going to disobey the admonition. You know, salvation is available to everyone. But we have to heed Christ's command to repent of our sin and to make Jesus the Lord. Otherwise, we will perish in a judgment that wasn't meant for us, but that was meant for God's enemies. 
And so he lists the second reason. Look at verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. In this verse, Peter gives a faithful admonition. Have your conduct honorable. Your conduct is your behavior or lifestyle. And the word honorable, by the way, can also be translated excellent. It's one of those Hebrew words that defies translation. It's the Hebrew word kalen. Now, excuse me, the Greek word kalen. But it's so rich, it's so significant. In the ancient world of Greece, it was a word that was used to describe something that was exceptional in its outward form or on the external. As a matter of fact, MacArthur adds about six other English words and expressions that offer insight into this one word. It's lovely, it's fine, it's winsome, it's gracious, it's fair to look at, it is noble. That's the idea. Criticism of Christians basically fall into two categories. Justified (laughs) and unjustified. In the ancient world, Christians were accused of everything that you could imagine. You may not know this, but in the world of the first century, Christians were accused of atheism. That might shock you. Well, what do you mean? Because they wouldn't worship the Greek gods or the Roman gods. And so from that world's perspective, they were considered nonconformists. In the ancient world, they were also accused of cannibalism because they heard talk of, of body and blood and eating Christ's body and drinking his blood. And so they envisioned a, a religion of cannibalism. They were accused of even eating their own children sometimes. And clearly, during the time of Nero, they were accused of burning down the city. So Peter moves from a faithful admonition to a false accusation. He says, when they speak against you as an evildoer. Now the word evildoer meant a person who commits a crime and deserves to be punished. That's what he's talking about. When they speak to you as evildoers, in other words, as people who commit crimes and deserve punishment, do you want to get an unbeliever's attention? Live your life in such a way that you testify that what you believe concerning the ability of Jesus to love you and to forgive you and to change your life is true. Leave no room for slander. When the Greek philosopher Plato was told that a certain man had been making slanderous charges against him, here was his response. I will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says. Isn't that good? That I'm going to live in such a way that no one will believe what he says. The most convincing tool, the most convincing argument to silence the critic is your real character. When you demonstrate your conduct, the most convincing argument isn't how loudly you deny the charges. But in the way that you really live your life. It says, by your good works, which they observe. Peter says, live a clean life. Leave no room for slander. Do good deeds among the unbeliever. In other words, the Bible certainly says, do good to all men, first to the household of God, 
but do good to everyone. By the way, what makes the story of the Good Samaritan so compelling? That a complete stranger, a total stranger, would sacrifice time and money to another total stranger. How do we earn the right to be heard? I suspect the answer isn't in advertising your ministry, but in your actions. I want to illustrate this. I came across this story yesterday, and it so shocked me and surprised me that I wanted to share it with you. This is, um, there was a robbery that took place in Pompano, Florida um, yesterday. And uh, I just want to show you the clip. James, do you have the clip up? Okay. Listen. You know what? I know you can do whatever you want. I'm, I'm just going to talk with you about the Jesus I had. The what? The Jesus I got before you leave. God bless you for that. I'm Christian and... I you know, so am I and I absolutely hate doing that. I don't know if you have a family. I don't know what happened. It's why I'm doing you. this. You know, but you know what? I can try to help you try to find a job. I have a lot of friends I in have church. A job. You do? Yeah. Why are you doing that? Because I'm going to be evicted if I don't come up with $300. I wouldn't be hurting you. I'm sorry. I have to take every step. I'm sorry. They will charge me for it. They'll charge you for it. I'm the one responsible. No one comes here. You know something? Mm. It's not real. It's a baby gun. Now, did you see what happened? I'm a Christian and I want to tell you about Jesus before you go. And he looks into the cash register and he says, I need this money because I'm... Now think about this. The clerk says, turns a desperate thief into a repentant gunman. This is from ABC News. When a man tried to rob Metro uh, PCS Cellstone at, at, at gunpoint in Pompano, the store manager, Nayara Concave, 20, calmly told the man about Jesus. And, and she basically says to him, you know what, I, I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes, well, I'm a Christian. <laughs> okay, you're a Christian? Yeah. Why are you doing this? Well, because I'm getting ready to be evicted and I need $300 in, in order to avoid being convicted. What, this, what the story didn't tell you is that she goes, okay, you know, I come from a fairly large church and we can help you find a job. He goes, oh, what church? Calvary Chapel. And then the robber said, I go to Calvary also. Now, let me just be clear here. If you go to this church and your plan is to commit a crime, and you claim to be a Christian, it's okay for you to claim to be a Christian, but just don't tell them you go here. <laughs> he's, she's sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with him. He goes, hey, I'm a Christian too. And then finally, he reveals that his weapon's only a BB gun. And then he, the robber said to her, you know one thing? Good will come your way for what you did today. You have a good day and God bless you. And he walked out the door. By the way, the Broward County Sheriff is looking for this man. Because guess what? Even though he may be a Christian, you can't rob stores at gunpoint even if you're hurting. You know what? It's not a sin to be homeless. 
we're being watched. The world is watching. The world is watching and it's wondering whether or not the claims of Christ are true. Warren Wearsby gives this story. He says, in the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, the chief said, quote, Brother, we are told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will consider again what you've said. In verse 12, Peter has given a faithful admonition. He addresses a false accusation and then he moves to a future affirmation. He says, in the day of visitation. He says that they may glorify God by your good works, which they observe glorifying God in the day of visitation. What is that? What's the day of visitation? In, in Luke 19.44 it says, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Jesus speaks of a visitation that comes from God. The root word, by the way, for visitation is episcopy. We get the word bishop or overseer from it, but it can be translated visitation, particularly when it speaks of an important dignitary who's going to show up and you have to give an account of your life. That's the idea. The Lord is the divine overseer. The Lord watches over his own and is able to intervene on his own's behalf. God visits people. And by the way, God visits people for one of two reasons. To save them or to judge them. That's what he's talking about. What does Peter have in mind here? One day God will visit all men, believer and unbeliever alike. And for the believer, the visitation will be gracious. But for the unbeliever, the visitation will be for judgment. And perhaps God will add on the list the indictments against the unbeliever by the good lives of the people whose lives were changed. By the way, do you suppose if this man gets caught, do you think they're going to play this video at his trial? What do you think? <laughs> See, you're laughing because you know it will be played. The heinousness of his crime is going to be exacerbated by the goodness and the decency that was demonstrated to him. That's the idea. So what is a Christian? We began the study. Let's end it with that. You know, in the middle of the second century, this is about 180 A.D., in a letter to Diognetus. This is an ancient document that goes all the way back to the middle of the second century. And there was this note talking about Christians. Quote, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality or language or customs. 
They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching isn't based upon revelries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress or food or manner of life in general. They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all of the disability of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. You see, in the ancient Roman practice, if you didn't want a child, you would simply put it out, and you would leave it to die. In other words, here's what they're saying. Christians don't kill their children. Christians don't kill their children. Not only do they not kill their children, but they go out to those children who are being exposed, and they pick them up. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Obedient to the law, they live yet on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they're not understood, they're put to death. But then they come back to life. They live in poverty, but they enrich many. They're totally destitute, but they possess everything in abundance. They suffer dishonor, but that's their glory. They're defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then they rejoice as though they're receiving the gift of life. They're attacked by Jews as aliens, yet they're persecuted by the Greeks. But no one can explain the reason for their hatred. In other words, he's saying, hey, when asked, hey, why do you hate Christians so much? I don't know. There's just something about them that annoys me. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world, but their religious life remains unseen. The body hates the soul and wars against it, not because of any injury the soul has done, but because of the restriction that the soul places on its pleasure. Similarly, The world hates the Christian, not because they've done wrong, but because they're opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them, just as the soul loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it is by the Christian detained in a world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place. And Christians also live for a time amidst perishable things while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. 
as the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution, such as the Christian's lofty and divine appointed function from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. This is a letter from an unbeliever to another person as he watches the behavior of the Christian in the world in which he lived. Imagine, you go to a store. Both people go to Calvary Chapel. One a cashier, the other a criminal. How could such a thing be found in the same church at the same time? If you're planning on committing crimes, just simply just don't tell people that you go here. Can you imagine inviting someone to your church and the person says, I would never, I would never go to Calvary Chapel. Why? Well, because the most wicked person I know goes there. If that's you, get your act together. I'm not saying leave the church, but what I am saying is embrace the resources that are available to you so that when the command is given, abstain from fleshly lust, that you duck and crawl away from the scene where the terror is taking place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the word of God and the son of God and the freedom that comes with forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that there are people who, when they read the admonition, abstain from fleshly lusts, that no matter how many good reasons are given, they're still going to disobey. They're going to allow emotion finances, circumstances, passions to dictate how they're going to go forward and they're going to wind up going backward. But Lord, you delivered them so that they wouldn't have to live that way anymore. Lord, for that man or that woman who's contemplating rebellion or disobedience, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you didn't save them to continue in slavery and for the unbeliever or the make-believer for the person who hears these words and it all seems so strange to them Lord I pray that you would speak to their heart Lord I pray that they would come to a place where they would see the value not in the hypocrisy of Christians but in the righteousness of Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection. And Lord, I pray that they would come to a place of openness to you, that they would experience forgiveness from you, and that they would experience what it means to know you and to love you and to walk with you in, in freedom instead of fear. In Jesus' name, amen.